Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with... Scott Tobias. Genevieve Kosky. And Keith Phipps. Here in the next picture show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're looking at two small town films full of fast talking characters played by high powered actors. Both films are about the push and pull dynamics in cities small enough that everyone knows each other and everyone has opinions about everyone else's business. In one case, the story revolves around filmmaking, and in the other, it revolves around policing. But in both cases, politics and personalities come into play. Scott, do you want to put down the fishing reel and the novelty bread loaf there and tell the listeners what we're covering this week? Fine, but if I'm going to have to read this entire speech you've written for me, I at least want an associate producer credit on this week's podcast. This week, we're headed down to the burned-out site of the former Old Mill, where we're looking for our personal purity in Staten, Maine. David Mamet's comedy from 2000, about a small-time film production navigating an endless series of obstacles as it careens towards the beginning of its shoot. The filmmakers were originally set to shoot in a different town, but a sex scandal involving their leading man caused trouble with the locals, so they're starting over in a new place where they're out of money, running out of time, and running up against a number of area residents with their own conflicting agendas. A darker crime is at the center of Barton McDonough's new film, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. A young resident was raped and murdered seven months ago, and the local police haven't made any arrests, don't have any suspects, and don't seem to be pursuing the case. So the victim's mother, played by Frances McDormand, rents a set of local billboards and puts up an incendiary message that has the town folk up in arms. These films are both dark comedies, though with very different tones, but they take similar ensemble cast approaches to their stories, addressing how tightly knit towns respond to pressures and internal strife and chuckling over colorful, larger-than-life characters while finding a lot of humanity in them. Between them, these two films point accusatory fingers at everyone from racist cops to self-indulgent actors to opportunistic politicians to men who wear bow ties. On the first of this week's episodes, we'll look at state and Maine and sort out who comes out as a villain and who's treated as a lovable scamp, and we'll examine why movie makers love movies about movie making so much. Then later in the week, we'll bring in three billboards and consider redemption arcs and the positives and negatives of living in a town where everybody knows your name. We'll be back after the break. This is your movie. This is small town America. 
They want to close down Main Street. The question is, who owns the street? What's it about? It's about the quest for purity. I don't want to take my shirt off. They told me they had an old mill. It burnt down. How do I do a film called The Old Mill when I don't have an old mill? Well, first you got to change the title. You treat me like a child. What's your problem? She doesn't want to bear her breasts. Why are we paying her $3 million? They know what her breasts look like. No, they can draw them from memory. <laughs> It takes all kinds. Shouldn't we be in school? It's night. You know, she could be in the movie. She could. No, 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 no. Everybody needs a hobby. The whole town's been been warped by the by, by the presence of the movie company. Why don't you sue me in the world court? How are you getting on with these fine people? I want them thrown in jail. You're going to jail. I didn't know it was illegal. Can we just try to keep our pants buttoned and get out of this town in one piece? Don't you? Don't. 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 Because I want to tell you something. And I think you know what I mean. David Mamet has always been obsessed with crooks. The characters he writes are usually men. They usually speak in clipped rhythmic dialogue with a lot of profanity and repetition. And they're usually involved in some kind of scheme or the other. Not all of them are literal criminals, but some of the most memorable are in films like Heist and The Spanish Prisoner and Things Change. And plenty of them are lawmen pursuing criminals and often acting above the law themselves in The Untouchables and Homicide, for instance. But plenty of them are grifters and conmen in less obvious ways. The real estate salesmen of Mammoth's Pulitzer Prize winning play, Glengarry Glen Ross, for instance, mostly aren't real criminals, at least until the stresses of their day job pushes some of them to it. They are professional liars, though. They're fast talkers trying to make it in an alpha male world where force of will is expressed through clever phrasing and the psychology of telling a mark exactly what he wants to hear to get him to cooperate. And so it goes in his 2000 comedy Staint in Maine, which takes Mamet away from his usual world of low-rent thieves and thugs and lets him try his familiar tricks on some fancier thieves and thugs, namely people in the movie industry. Staint in Maine is part of the long-running tradition of movie makers making movies about how incredibly hard it is to make movies. It's something unusual for Mamet, a full-on antic ensemble comedy about all the barriers in the way of a small-time sentimental period piece about a fireman who just wants a second chance in life. The director, Walt Price, played by William H. Macy, is one of those grifters who'll say anything to get someone's cooperation and keep his production moving forward. He's backed by Marty Rawson, played by David Paymer, a lawyer and producer who's used to throwing his weight around and using threats where Walt uses charm. And they're both up against a cast of complications, including Alec Baldwin as a leading man engaged in serial sexual misconduct with underage girls. Sarah Jessica Parker is a frequently nude leading lady who suddenly wants an extra $800,000 to take off her top. Philip Seymour Hoffman as a soft-hearted screenwriter who can't cope with production demands. Charles Durning and Patti Lapone as the mayor and first lady of the small Vermont town where the shooting is taking place. Julia Stiles as a teenager who's read up on Baldwin's romantic habits and is out to take advantage. And especially Clark Gregg as a local politician who sees a chance to profit from Walt's production. The only person in town who doesn't seem to have an angle in mind is Anne, played by Rebecca Pidgeon, Mamet's wife and frequent collaborator. Anne is a bookstore owner and amateur theatrics director who recognizes something in Hoffman's character that's deserving of the second chance that he wants to offer the main character in his script. While everyone else is pushing hard for what they want, she's standing by to help. State in Maine takes a farcical, freewheeling approach to filmmaking, portraying it as just another form of heist, where everyone has their specialized job to do, and any failures means the crime can't go through. But Mamet also doesn't particularly portray filmmaking as art, or as a calling, or as a means of self-expression. A few of the characters are willing to put themselves into their work, but for the most of the people involved here, it's a cutthroat business, and anyone who gets in the way deserves whatever fallout they get. 
State in Maine is full of industry-specific problems, like how to finance a set build, get a shooting permit, make the mechanics of a shot work, salve the egos of fragile actors, and a lot more. But it also suggests that it's just another industry where force of will and a gift for gab get people what they want, and where conventional morality and actual law aren't nearly as important as winning, in whatever form that takes. It's worth wondering who Mamet most identifies with here. The writer who's trying to preserve his vision and create something worthwhile, or the director who's just trying to steamroll past the next crisis and get out on the other end with his contract fulfilled. Either way, he suggests that filmmakers are just another band of profane, selfish crooks doing whatever it takes to get by. Don't run off. Don't run off. We need you. You know why? You're why we're here. Your script is why we're here. Big deal. We fight a little bit. You show me a family that doesn't. But we got something good here. You know what it is? We're here to make a movie. We can't use the old mill. That happens. What you got to do, you got to figure out the essence. What is it that brought us all here? It wasn't a building, Joe. It was an idea. What is the essence of your story, Joe? It's about a man who gets a second chance. Then you write that. And then this is our second chance. That's why we're all here. I want to make a good film. I know you do. And, and I know maybe it'll be a better film without the old mill. Hey, it's with the gods. We don't have the money. We got to write it out, the best or not. And that's a lesson. Let's just start with something that's going to be on a lot of people's minds revisiting this film in the middle of kind of the cultural moment we're in. A large part of this film revolves around a sex scandal involving the leading man of the movie, played by Alec Baldwin, who is sexually attracted to teenagers and has been pursuing them. And the production has been actively covering that up in order to make sure that he doesn't end up out of the film. How did that play for you in the wake of the Weinstein fallout? It was really awkward. <laughs> it was very strange to revisit this film, which is not a film, I'll be upfront here, it's not a film I love anyway. I, like, I didn't really care for it that much the first time I saw it 17 years ago, and I thought just based on its reputation and my pal Scott Tobias's affection uh, for this film that I would like it a lot more. And uh, no, I think that's kind of where I landed with the first time. But at the same time, just kind of like, I appreciate this is a black comedy, and I, I definitely don't want to come at this from a finger-wagging point of way, but wow, in 2000, it seems like we were a lot more open to treating a star with a thing for underage girls as sort of a, a fun little character flaw and covering it up as sort of like just uh, another part of the running gag. Is, I don't know. It just it plays very differently for me now. I, I would argue that it takes it very seriously. I mean, that's, okay. it's the title of the movie, State in Maine, that is where the accident takes place. So it is morally important to the film. It is what the film turns on, really, at the end, is how this specific incident is handled. And what is this movie about? It's a film about purity. It's a film about purity, <laughs> but it's also a film about a, about a screenwriter who is pressured not to talk about something he's witnessed under threat of his career. So for my, oh, yeah, for to, sure. to my mind, I feel like the film is very solidly in step with what, what is being revealed now 
And I think it, maybe it's just taking it almost as a matter of course mm. at the time, which is which I think it was. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know that at the heart of this film is a moral dilemma, and it's about that. And for all the jokes about being a film about purity, it is kind of a film about purity. I, I get all that. It just it doesn't quite work for me. I just I just find that the tonal dissonance t- between the material and the way it's treated is it just is kind of off for me. I I don't like the score at all. Yeah, the, the score really takes me out of it. There's just these little touches where like I theoretically understand why people like this movie so much, and there's lines I think are are really brilliant and exchanges that, that are just so sharp and you know going over like the running gags like the old mill but the mill burned down all this stuff is really you know funny in theory but watching it just doesn't work i don't know i may be the outlier here so i don't want to just i don't want to be this all about my descent from from this film that everybody else loves but it's just not, not welcome to my world Keith. Yeah, i know i don't i don't want to be you know tasha robinson <laughs> i don't want to be all tasha about it but you are being all tasha about it and i kind of love it because it's pretty rare that i get to sit at a table where i like the film more than i it's i'm not entirely unused to being the only person at the table that liked the film but i am unused to being part of a group of people who love the film uh, and having somebody else at the table loathe it. Mm. But Genevieve, I don't want to speak I for really you. want to hear what, what, yeah, what's your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I had actually never seen this film before. So I was getting it for the first time within the Weinstein context. And um, I actually thought it was really relevant within the cultural conversation we're having right now, just in terms of the systems of power that enable these sort of crimes and enable them being covered up and overlooked. The one part of that I did find uncomfortable in this moment is the aspect where Julia Stiles' character sort of targets Mm -hmm. Alec Baldwin's character and pursues him knowing that he has a thing for underage girls. Mm -hmm. But other than that, that aspect of the film didn't really uh, strike a terribly bomb note for me. It it saddens the winkiness of the whole thing, you know, and it's sort of like, you know, everyone is venal, even Mm -hmm. uh, a teenage girl in this situation, you know, it's rough. I think it's kind of a rough ride. It's even a small town teenage girl in a place that's very consciously portrayed as this sort of weirdly Norman Rockwellian out of time kind of place. I mean, I think it's really interesting that she's actively predatory, that she she researches the things that he's into. She lies about being into them herself. She manipulates the situation to get him alone. But at the same time, would it could it possibly play at a, as a comedy any different way? Like if she was trying to evade him or she actually was an, a complete innocent and he was pursuing her. You couldn't find a comedic element to that, even a dark comedic element, I think. I'm, I'm with you in the same boat. I find it uncomfortable. But I think ultimately I find it uncomfortable because by the end of the movie, I'm still not entirely clear on what she wants. I'm clear on what her, her point in the plot is. But we kind of find out like the, the cover up happens and he gets off scot-free and continues his career. She's just sort of left standing by and she never really gets a word in to explain Mm -hmm. like what she wanted, what she intended. My take was that she was just like everyone else kind of dazzled by this film star. And and this was her in to be close to him and stand a little closer to, to the, uh, the spotlight. But I, you know, beyond that, you're right. It, it is kind of left blank. Yeah, I think like within the story, the film is telling about how Hollywood, for lack of a better word, corrupts this small town in sort of unexpected ways. Like her actions are an example of that and being sort of venal and calculating in a way that is echoed on a much larger scale by the characters who are involved in the film's production. And, you know, there are lots of less sinister notes we get of the way in which this group of 
Hollywood people are kind of altering the landscape of this small town. I, I really love the running gag of the two diner guys, you know, <laughs> yeah. like starting to read variety and like eating matzo crackers and, you know, just like sort of the, the way that Hollywood is insinuating itself into this town in unexpected ways. So through that lens, I think that Carla's actions can kind of be read as a, as her having been corrupted by a sort of gossip centric culture and a celebrity centric right. culture. Yes. It weirds the whole story that Julia Stiles has always come across as so much older than her mm, age. Yeah. She is a very sophisticated woman. And I think the movie is meant to make us believe that she's 14 or 15, like that she's mm. too young for this to be even remotely excusable. The picture that we see of the last girl that he went after looks pre-adolescent i mean she's she's reportedly 14 but she looks like a boy mm -hmm. like she's got like short cropped hair and no I, I actually thought it was a little boy uh, mm -hmm. and maybe that's because i'm you know watching this post kevin spacey but you know it, at first i was bracing myself for a story where he is attracted to young boys but which is not better or worse it's just like a different thing you it's know? a different vibe because this is what we're talking about in 2017 which is better or worse yeah um. <laughs> well that's just it i mean in the movie's morale the fact that she goes after him, I think, doesn't excuse it because, I mean, he he does get punished for it. I think one thing that sort of helps the morality of the film is that it's very clear that everybody is just completely disgusted by him. But to some degree, they're disgusted not because he goes after 14-year-olds, but because he's messing with the movie, man. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is our job and this is our livelihood and you're screwing with it. The scandal of the day is Charlie Rose. Uh, this will sound quaint by the time you listen to exactly. this podcast. <laughs> Seriously. By the time, like yeah. a good... I'm sure by the time this 47 airs, more another, scandals another, from now another dozen or so but as Genevieve was talking about like systems of power I mean, there's so much pressure on Philip Seymour Hoffman to fall in line obviously because if he comes out and, and does the right thing the entire production falls not just one person the entire production fails and that's such a motive for keeping people like Charlie Rose in power because he has the Charlie Rose show and the Charlie Rose show going away means that every person involved in that production now that is out of a job or kevin spacey and house of cards i mean yeah. to an, another like prominent example and like that part of the conversation i've seen come up the most in discussing kevin spacey and house of cards and how canceling the show would result in hundreds of people losing their jobs and, and so on and so forth mm -hmm. which is definitely played out here if not quite addressed so explicitly I think it's interesting that, uh, to me, this film does not treat the old mill like it's going to be some work of great art. No. And it, I, I've seen so many movies about movie making, like comedy ones and serious ones. It seems really rare for movies about movie making to seem to suggest that what's being made is actually going to be a good film. Do you, do you guys get the impression that there's going to be anything of quality in the old mill when I'm it's gonna done? Say, I'm going to say that I think that we're at least to accept that this is going to be a work of integrity like at its core like you know even though mamet as he in his cynical way you know likes to make fun of the pretentious playwright one of the great details of the movie is the author photo on on the play anguish mm -hmm. which is like the perfect uh, miserable <laughs> uh serious author author fo photo so i think he's kind of he does sort of like to poke holes at that type of uh writer but there has to be something 
to be sullied here by the process, right? I mean, it can't be garbage that gets sullied. It has to be purity there. There has to be something of integrity in order for us to appreciate how that thing is diminished by the process. I thought one of the quaintest things about this movie, apart from the flip phones, was all this work was for like what was apparently a mid-budget studio film uh, Yeah, <laughs> about, about an adult drama of some kind. I, I was under the uh, impression it was more like kind of a big budget awards ba- type of thing simply by virtue of Alec Baldwin's character being like the highest grossing film star mm. um, and uh, Sarah Jessica Parker's character being the sort of like up and comer who was really excited about this opportunity. Like I think both of those characterizations of their career to me suggest a a bigger, more prestigious production, mm-hmm. um, which I kind of like reading it that way because I think it makes all the behind the scenes drama and, and like the sort of crass nature of it, it throws it into sharper relief in a way that I like uh, when attached to a prestige film as opposed to sort of a, a scrappy or mid-budget film. I mean, for me, it just comes down to that, like Sarah Jessica Parker, when she first shows up and talks about the great speech she's going to get mm-hmm. to give, and she gives us a little snippet of the dialogue, and it's all about how, you know, look at that old mill go around and around sometimes it's underwater but it just keeps pulling itself back up half the time it's terrible but i I also feel like going back to mammoth mocking the playwright it does kind of seem like the worst case scenario version of mammoth dialogue that like Mm. kind of clever unexpected metaphor rich soliloquy but put in a just really stupid context joe's been having some thoughts about the old mill scene claire what is there to think about the scene is perfect. I, I get to say... Yeah, but Joe's been... Well, he's, he's been having a few um, thoughts. How many times in your life do you get a speech like that? Yeah. This scene is why I'm doing the movie. Look at the mill, Frank. Look at the way it goes round. Half the time the darn wheel's underwater, but still it rises up, Frank. It rises up. As high as it can go. Can we talk about how completely brilliant the reveal is for the old mill? I just, I know Mike D'Angelo wrote a piece for the EV Club back in the day for Scenic Roads about that reveal, but just uh, about how uh, impressing the name of the, the script against the uh, <laughs> window, and that's how we know that the movie is called The Old Mill. I thought, I Long after a... we've discovered that the mill has burned down, there's yes. not going to be a mill. And Does there have to be a that mill? He's going to be, that he's been ordered to rewrite it without the mill. Yes, that is a pretty pretty great oh, God, reveal. Yeah, There's so much of that in this movie. I appreciate this film so much just on a mechanical level i mean it's so satisfying just the rhythms of the thing the way it's constructed uh the way certain reveals like that old mill thing are are, are handled or how the product placement is handled at the end it's just it's just he just has a way of just dropping those things in and just so subtly and just in satisfyingly he's just he's it's so clever you know, and then I think this is like a true kind of screwball comedy in, in a way that we never see. I mean, when do we ever see a screwball in, the, in a sort of grand old tradition? I mean, maybe the Coens, I guess, attempt it sometimes. This reminds me more than anything of the Coens movie. And in part, I mean, it reminds me of really, really cynical ones like Burn After Reading. Because the thing that we come to at the end with you know, we've we've paid people off, institutions aren't going to do their jobs, uh, the cops are not going to arrest. Baldwin, there's mm-hmm. not going to be any prosecution, and uh, Clark Gregg is just going to like run off to a bigger political sphere, like while this film gets made, where he can continue to be corrupt. Like it, it's all very, very cynical mm-hmm. in a way that very much reminds me of the Coens. But so does the setting with all of these kind of over the top, wacky, broadly drawn characters, and just like the the 
cutting edge of cynicism going on here in general. And just the rhythms of the stylized dialogue. Well, I want to talk a little about some of the individual characters. And the one that comes most to mind, obviously, having lost Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, whenever we see a movie that that really foregrounds him, it's just sort of a reminder of how amazing this dude's career was and what a terrific actor he was. But in the commentary track on the DVD, David Paymer describes him as the ingenue of the film, which I thought was a really interesting uh, way of addressing it. I mean, that suggests both that he's the real innocent here and that this is his story, which, I mean, he has more of an arc than anyone else, I think, given that the meta film is described about being about purity and second chances, which we see applied to him. There's something to be said for that structurally. But he doesn't get it doesn't feel like he gets the most screen time and he may not be the most memorable character. How did he work for you? Is he the ingenue? Is this his story? Yes, I, I think he I, is. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I, I, I feel like he definitely has the most screen time. I mean, I, I haven't done the math on that, but <laughs> um, and I, I do think his arc is central to the story, as you were saying. I do think it's interesting, like seeing him as an ingenue uh, positioned with the character of Anne and the extent to which she is maybe his ingenue or what she's you, the ingenue, uh, the ingenue. Yeah. yeah yes <laughs> to which he is positioned with the ingenue who is you know perhaps mammoth's ingenue it's i think it's less that like joe is the focus of the story and that joe and Anne together yeah i mean sort of i, I first of all i often so good i mean, just so good it's painful to think about the performances we don't get from philip seymour hoffman not being around now let's bring this podcast down a little further uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um Anne is such a unchanging character to me. Mm-hmm. and she's written that way and performed that way and rebecca bidgen commits to choices for that character early on and, and sticks with them unwaveringly just sort of that, that sort of knowing half smile is you know it, it's it she seems kind of aware of the corruption and the and the, the oddness going on around her and not necessarily approving of it but it's strangely kind of untouched by it but she almost sometimes feels more like a device than anything else as well yeah she definitely feels like a device but i'll tell you she feels like a very familiar cinematic device and once again i mean if if we're positing this kind of pudgy middle-aged man as the ingenue, then his romantic interest is kind of one of those, I don't know, I think of stories like Bridges of Madison County or The Horse Whisperer. Like in all of these small town stories where somebody comes back to town from the big city and needs their wounds licked, like there's the local who is quiet and calm and confident and represents some kind of big deep country wisdom. And more often than not, that is a male character who kind of harkens back to the cowboy figure. And here, it's a woman who kind of represents a little more of a matronly figure. I mean, she's a comparatively like young and attractive woman, but she knows everybody in town. She's involved in all of these things. They look to her for leadership in a lot of different ways. It, to me, this is just, it's a very familiar type. It's just a type we're not used to seeing as a woman. Well, I, I wish I could follow up on that thought, but I wanted to touch on Joe because one thing about Joe is that he is the only person who doesn't know what's going on or is, doesn't <laughs> have an angle. You know, he's the most important character. He's the audience surrogate because we are discovering the world of the film through him and through through all his shock and surprise as all of this corruption is revealed to him um, and is much more centered about it, even from the vantage of a someone from a small town who, who should be shocked by all of this behavior. I think she has a read on it that 
she patiently waits for him to understand and she has an this almost like intrinsic trust uh, of him i mean there's one of my favorite moments in the movie is the bit in the bedroom where sarah jessica parker has visited philip seymour hoffman in his bedroom and he's trying to explain why she's there you know without her <laughs> clothes on or something and, uh, and he in the explanation is just a mess it's an absolute <laughs> mess and he's like you believe that and she says, I do if you do, but it's absurd. And she says, so is our electoral process, but we still vote. Uh, <laughs> it's a very mammity exchange. It's a great, it's a great exchange. But I just, I, I like that self-conscious moment uh, where we realize that we're watching a movie. And this is a very movie thing for this situation to have this ridiculous explanation that, that has to be uh, bought by the character. But in any case, I do think he's the most important character in the, in the film. It, it, the title refers to this incident that happens uh, and a decision that he has to make. You know, and then all, all the business that happens towards the end with the fake uh, deposition, which is again a brilliant brilliant reveal that uh oh man i mean as neat as it is as a reveal somebody worked really hard to mess up that set immediately after using it like (laughs) i've done a lot of plays and i'll tell you like the second the the curtain goes down you don't immediately run onto stage to just dump armloads of garbage there that's true nonetheless it's a really good very clever yeah it's also a really unexpected reveal because, like, Mehmet excels at this kind of, like, sudden twist in Glengarry Glen Ross, in Things Change, which is probably my favorite obscurish Mehmet, mm-hmm. uh, in Spanish Prisoner. But it, it's not expected here because there's no setups for it. It's not openly that kind of film. It feels like a completely different kind of film. And that one always catches me a little by surprise. And then it's, that is a delightful surprise, too, that, because you aren't set up for it, but it's one of those things where you're surprised by it and don't feel cheated. Yeah, well, you're set up for cynicism, and then the movie gives you a second chance. Yeah. Besides the Hoffman, what I mean, what stands out for you? There's there's a lot of business going on here, and uh, including like a lot of characters who appear and disappear from the film. Like, what what stands out for you? I, I feel I feel bad like going right to like such a minor thing <laughs> when there are so many like bigger performances to cover here. But I really like these little stories playing out in in the background characters, and I think the best example of that is I, I think he's probably the assistant director whose wife is pregnant, <laughs> uh, and, and just the progression we get of that story as throughout the movie which also kind of helps mark time like how long this is going on for you know going from i'm pregnant to there are complications you know and then the payoff at the end of the the badge that it's a girl badge (laughs) and just the way that all plays out with so little attention paid to it by anyone in the film just really kind of underlines the ensemble nature of this where even characters who you wouldn't necessarily call part of the main ensemble are playing out their own little narrative threads I think one of my favorite details is the awful, awful storyboards. I mean, yes. (laughs) That's the other thing. I like, I called out that line that Sarah Jessica Parker gives, but when we see the storyboards, it's not about purity. (laughs) I mean, that looks like a really poorly conceived porn film and it's meant to because what we're, what we're told (laughs) is the new script changes are meant to improve it. (laughs) But, it's just, it's so delightfully crass. Well, and I, I love the uh, kind of the going back and forth between it's about purity and it's about uh, second chances. And it's like about these two things. And in that, uh, like the pan over those horrible storyboards, what William H. Macy's character is saying, I wrote it down because it, I thought it was so funny. 
uh, his voiceover is saying, every movie's got to be about something, and it's got to be about just one thing. What's this movie about? It's what we always said it's about. We were lost, but now we're back on the right track. <laughs> so <laughs> It's always got to be about one thing, but it's also about purity, and it's also about <laughs> second chances. And just kind of this running gag of the movie is about whatever we need it to be about to make the point we're trying to make, mm-hmm. I think is very winking in a way that I definitely associate with Mamet. For me, this whole movie is just is William H. Macy. He sort of fades to the background as the film goes on and as it's more about Hoffman and Pigeon and their romance and about uh, Clark Gregg and his revenge and all of these other things. But just Macy's, first of all, I love him. Second of all, I love him in Mammoth. My favorite ever interview uh, at the AV Club was Scott's interview with William H. Macy, where he specifically asked him, you know, what what's your preparation for acting? And it, this has always stuck with me because I <laughs> I spent my career trying to get uh, actors to say something this interesting. He basically said the process of acting is getting in a, into a room with somebody, figuring out what you want from them, and then trying to make them give it to you. Like that's his approach. And I I, I always like I always thought, but. You've done so many monologues where you're in a room by yourself. Like, how do you work that? (laughs) But I always think of that interview when I see him acting because it always comes back to that for me is just how good he is at these hard driving characters who will do and say absolutely anything to get what they want. And sometimes it it comes in a nervy whine like it does in Fargo. And here it comes in a, a much more like organized alpha male kind of way. But like watching him like lie and cheat and steal and change who his character character is from moment to moment based on the need of that moment, you know, whether he needs to be comforting or wise or bossy or hateful or crass. I mean, there are some really crass moments in this film. And then he turns around and is, you know, gently comforting Sarah Jessica Parker and making up anecdotes that don't actually mean anything. I just, I love his performance in this Always, film. always offering to go to dinner with people. It's like a, a thing with his character. He's like, well, well, we'll get dinner. We'll talk it out over dinner, you know? And then, and then of course, there's this big dinner with the mayor that just gets completely <laughs> forgotten about or... Or deliberately sabotaged, depending on how you read that. Oh, I, I don't. I definitely think it's it's the production assistant's yeah. fault for putting yeah. it in the wrong box. Yeah, yeah there is a shot there that, that's like very confusing to me, where you can like very clearly see the brushed out yeah, di- dinner really with the mayor. Bad yeah, continuity error. Yeah, so that's why I thought like maybe there's there's a suggesting a, a deliberate act of sabotage there, but I think that was like you said, it's probably just a continuity. Yeah, I, mean, error. I think we were just it was supposed to be she hit the board and wiped wiped yeah. off the mar- marker and put it in a different slot, but yeah, that, that is. That is kind of weird. To go back to that Macy interview, which I think I probably recorded on cassette, like an actual <laughs> cassette, way, way back in the day. Uh, my The thing I always remember from that interview is when I asked him about doing these sort of ensemble films and if he goes and watches the other actors perform when he's not in a scene he he said no that would be like the postman going for a walk (laughs) Uh, which i always love that line but as far as like you know little touches i i I like the running a lot of running bits like the um, pothole the way that the way that's handled and that that ends up being consequential later he's just you, you can really appreciate the mechanics of screenwriting by watching this this movie so there's that too and the other thing that struck me with this film as well and its attitude is it's is that it's felt like almost like a spiritual cousin to the player didn't it i mean like mm, sure i mean the player is probably more cynical about hollywood than this but i think on a similar level of just acid uh, you know one one has to do with the actual production offices and working within a studio but you could almost see how one environment filters into the next you could see you could see the studio and the in the player or, or that culture kind of 
having an impact on a production like the, the old mill. Well, speaking of that, the, as I said earlier, there's a pretty long tradition of movie makers making movies about movie making. And some of that is just the old, you know, do what, <laughs> draw what you know, kind of thing coming into play. But I think anybody that spends enough time on a set just looks around them and sees, you know, constant unending drama and desperation. Mm-hmm. And Macy, who's really active on the, the DVD commentary, says a couple of things I think are really interesting. One is that that Mamet improvises a lot, hmm. which I find really interesting yeah. because, you know, we've always heard that he's one of those people who's super precise about his language. But apparently in this, he was constantly going to people and just throwing lines at them out of the blue and saying, you know, try this instead, try this instead. And a lot of what we're seeing was improvised not by the actors, but by Mamet on the set on the day. Which apparently really threw Sarah Jessica Parker. <laughs> the other thing is Macy says directing a movie is like fighting a war. It's the most stressful thing ever. Directors check themselves into hospitals after they're done with movies. I've I've seen it over and over. I'm not kidding. Like he really seems to think that this is like end of the world kind of stuff. So if you experience that, I can see where you would think this is going to make a good topic for a movie. But I'm wondering, like, just in general, if you guys like movies about movie making and what maybe some of your favorites are, where this ranks. Well, in, in general, I do. And, and rather than choose a favorite, I'll, I'll just point out something I like in this film, which is how everything needs to line up for the simplest things to happen. How you have to get the permit. There actually has to be an old mill, but then you have to get the permit to film there. Everything has to work. You know, just the technical details involved in just the, the getting a shot. You know, you're watching a film and you have to forget all that. But, but the amount of effort involved, in, even to make a problem not very promising looking film uh, is extraordinary. I like that this movie isn't necessarily about filmmaking per se so much as it's about pre-production on a mm. film like I mean we don't you know the the last scene of the film is the first scene of the film being shot you know it's much more about like like you said the, the kind of the technical headaches involved in filmmaking like it opens with location scouting and there's you know like you said a lot of discussion of like how to get a specific shot and permits I can't think of any other examples of films about filmmaking that really do that to this extent and just as kind of a detail-oriented process nerd i was i found that approach really compelling especially kind of uh, stripped of any sort of romanticism about filmmaking it's very much a how things get done approach that's really interesting because thinking about films about filmmaking that i really like like get shorty or the player or eight and a half or even something like like mulholland drive or tropic thunder like most of those films are about like kind of the wheeling and dealing that maybe that finances a film or that gets the actors in place, but it they don't really tend to go much further than that into the mechanics of making a film. Happen. And there is a little bit of that here too, like the contracts with Sarah Jessica Parker's contract and stuff like that, you know, and there is a little bit of sort of the, the legal wheeling and dealing and the, the money aspect of it, but I don't know, that's less interesting to me. Well, one of the things too that this film captures like I, I was watching the film the bad and the beautiful recently with kirk douglas and you know one thing that that film is about and this film is to some extent too is that is that filmmaking is extremely uh high stakes and high pressure and unpredictable there are a lot of elements that come into play that that really screw up a production emotions run really high people are at each other's throats and yet they kind of survive it somehow i mean you know the, the bad and the beautiful is really about these three people coming to terms with how they've been really betrayed in a horrible horrible way by Kirk Douglas's character and it just feels like that's the nature of the beast that there's a lot of stuff that goes on that is extraordinarily 
intense and, and, and ugly, and uh, and yet it all kind of weirdly come together at the end. I, I don't know what to think about the end of the movie in terms of the rest of it, because I mean, you could look at it at maybe a certain amount of affection sort of creeping into the last part of the film that wasn't there before, the denouement, when they're actually out there shooting, and hey, what a, you know, what a magical thing that this finally came together, and everybody seems to be working as a team after all the stuff that came before. But well, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on the ending anyway? The the thing about that uh, last scene that sticks out to me is uh, Joe's presence there and uh, where he is in that scene, which is like right next to the director, like watching him direct and seeing that in the context of what William H. Macy told him when he was trying to get him to not say anything about Bob is, you know, like I have a five picture deal, you know, you can write the next two and direct the third. And I think like that shot of Joe being at the director's shoulder and looking through the camera, it's kind of foreshadowing, you know, the career arc of of this character. And I think that that is a very cynical, but, probably accurate uh you know reading of where that character goes yeah that's interesting because of course he never gets a chance to he never gets the second chance really he doesn't really get to come out and say anything he doesn't get the second chance to to do do the the right right thing thing. he gets the second chance to participate in this corrupt system that he's now a part of and will perhaps grow and become his own way i mean i think it's suggested that he he would do the right thing if given the chance Mm -hmm. and that the movie kind of suggests that that's enough but to to push it in the direction that it needs to go, which, you know, given the payoff involved and the the falling apart of the very justified criminal case against Alec Baldwin, the movie goes in a pretty cynical direction. And it couldn't go in a cynical direction if it did end with him taking the second chance. I, I think it just it lets you know that he would make the right choice if he had it to do all over again. Maybe. I'll tell you what. Every single time I, – I like this film a lot. I've seen this film a number of times. Every single time I expect that bag of money to go to Julia Stiles and I think that that would kind of be a better ending because huh. if you read it as like she just wants to get away from her podunk town, she wants like a taste of stardom or a taste of a bigger life, that money would get her out of there. And for me, it would be like more of an arc for her where she she gets something and we have some idea what she wants. Whereas Clark Gregg kind of gets rewarded for being a jerk and a not very good lawyer and a not very good politician, which is cynical and kind of funny, but cynical and kind of funny in a lazier way, I think. Yeah, but I also think if she did get the money, that discomfort we were feeling about the extent to which her character targets uh, Bob would be even more uncomfortable in sure, terms of profiting. I mean, I am always more up for ladies behaving badly than I am for ladies who don't necessarily have a purpose. Oh, yeah. Story. I, well, I mean, her. yeah, that character just disappears. Like, there, there is no conclusion to that character. I definitely agree with you there that it would give that character a conclusion that it doesn't necessarily have. I don't know if giving her the money would be the ending I want for that character, at least not in 2017. What is the <laughs> ending you want for that character? Like, if there was some resolution for her, what would you want it to be? I don't know. I'm not David Mamet <laughs> or Joe Aber- <laughs> You know, that's probably good for this effing podcast, because if you were David Mamet, you wouldn't be able to stop effing swearing every effing time we, we recorded. You know what is a good 
film about movie making that is specifically about all of the lead up wrangles and that also ends with the first shot of the movie being shot is Christopher Guest's The Big Picture with mm-hmm. Kevin oh, right. Bacon. Yeah. Which is also a very antic comedy. Very funny too. I'm a fan of that movie. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. I haven't seen it in so long. Yeah, that kind of gets into like student films, things like that. And that is another like kind of case in point for me of the, the boy, the art that you were busting your butt to make <laughs> does not look like good art. So, Genevieve, you brought up in passing uh, the whole thing with Sarah Jessica Parker's contract. My biggest question for the movie, as many times as I've seen it, I still cannot get a handle on Sarah Jessica Parker's character. Is she just trying to get money? Does she not know what she wants? Is she really embarrassed about still showing her breasts at the point where she is in her career? I feel like who she is and what she wants changes from scene to scene. And it's possible that that is itself a commentary on how emotional and mercurial and difficult to manage actors can be. Or again, it just could be lazy writing. Like, what is you guys' take? That's terrible grammar. But what is you guys' take? <laughs> I mean, watching this, uh, I definitely got the sense that David Mamet hates actors. <laughs> or at least finds them insanely frustrating. Except for the ones he works with over and over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just passive aggressively hates them in his writing that he writes for them. I lean more toward the the former, that that character is kind of purposely mercurial and maybe manipulative. I mean, she's an actress. I feel like her breakdown is is calculated in that sense, which is like not an admirable trait for that character. Like, I think that character is you're meant to think of them as a bad person to some extent. I found it inconsistent, though. I, I feel the whole thing with her getting religion was sort of brought up and dropped. I don't know. Maybe again, that is commentary on what an but actor then is she's like. A, but... She's a nun at the end. Like she's yeah, suddenly a nun at the end, yeah. which I feel is maybe a joke on the writer's expense, be it Mamet or Joe at that. Well, that does play like a joke just because it doesn't come up at, at any other point. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's about purity. And mm-hmm. suddenly that takes on a completely different line. But you do have to wonder at what point that was added, because it's certainly not how you've been picturing that character up until right. then. Especially after those storyboards. Yeah, that subplot of the film is the one that does not work for me as much as the rest of the movie. I just don't find it very funny, and I find it uncomfortable in a not terribly productive way. So I, I don't know. I, I don't really know how to account for it or, or even read it all that generously. It just seems a little gross to me, the whole thing. Yeah, it's always a little off for me as well, because because it's in her contract and because they're so crass about it. Like, mm-hmm. Macy goes on and on and on about the broad and her tits. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if his attitude wasn't so cynical, I feel like the movie could get away with trying to force her into something that she's uncomfortable with. But it's so clearly just this venal box office move. And then Pamer is like a whole nother level of horrible, right? Yeah, true. I mean, like he's like, he I is, love David Pamer. I too. do too. I do too. But just like, <laughs> but just like the two of them, it's just like, it really uh, shook me, you know, <laughs> again, not funny kind of horrifying way uh, with that character. Just never, it never worked for me on a thematic level or on a just on a level of just comedy it just wasn't funny for me. you know getting back to that the, where we started with the relevance of this movie i think it's really interesting that when macy is alone with sarah jessica parker and she's breaking down he's capable of being very comforting with her and trying to smooth over things and, and give her what she wants and acknowledge her emotions when he's alone with Pamer, they talk about her like she's a piece of meat it's so clear that 
the two of them being alone together as dudes who want something puts them in a space where they can completely dismiss her and and talk about her in horrible ways. But when he's alone with her, it's completely different. And I think the movie is smart about that. I think Mammoth is deliberately consciously depicting this mechanic of how people are different around each other depending on the gender combination and how it's relevant to the story and i think that character is great i mean the, the base character is great because you you have moments within the scenes where he'll modulate his tone mm-hmm. I, I think there's the scene where she actually walks out over this he's talking on the phone to, to press and the way he's dealing with her and dealing with the person on the <laughs> phone completely different tone and you know he's a manipulative guy i mean that's what his, that he feels is, is his job is and you know when he's talking to Pamer, i mean i think you're getting the straight dope like you're getting who he really is Certainly, and then when he's trying to console Sarah Jessica Parker and sort of talk her off the ledge. So, just as a closing thing, what is up with the matzah joke? There, there are a whole lot of running gags throughout this film. Go you Huskies! And a, like just a lot of callbacks and things like Zoomer.com that just kind of pop in and out. But the matzah thing is really foregrounded. Are we just making a joke about Jewish people in the industry? Because there's a lot of casual and or jokey anti-Semitism in here as well. But the matzah thing is just like Macy makes a comment about how there's no way he's going to eat carbs. And then he orders a box of matzah and then orders it for everybody in the production. And then we spend it feels like somebody had a sponsorship contract for (laughs) matzah crackers. I don't know. Looking around the room with the puzzled expressions, I think this is one we had to hand over to the listeners. So listeners, send us your your best matzah theory. (laughs) Please explain to us. I'm going to always leave a little something for the viewer to figure out. (laughs) Something to chew on. In this case, something sort of dry and and tough and difficult to chew on. Well, speaking of people writing in to give us their takes on movies, we've got a bunch of feedback letters, and we will be right back to get into those in a minute. Now it's time for feedback, which has been coming in at a steady clip as people get caught up on our backlog. Uh, Genevieve, you want to kick us off with a letter about our last pairing on Lady Bird and Ghost World? Sure. Rich from Ann Arbor writes, The Lady Bird is a thematically complex film with much to unravel. One thread I'm surprised you didn't discuss is its through line of spirituality. The Lady Bird has little regard for Catholicism's iconography and dogma, munching on her school's communion wafers by the handful and mouthing off to an anti-abortion speaker. The religion's message of community and compassion clearly gets under her skin. She spends the entire film trying to stand out from the world around her. But when she finally breaks free and makes it to the big city, she quickly finds that this approach to life is isolating and nihilistic when she's out on her own, and finds solace in a church during a hungover walk of shame. As a Catholic high school graduate myself, who had a secular upbringing and identifies as agnostic, I found the film's lack of one-dimensional reflexive snark against religion refreshing, as well as reflective of Gerwig as a filmmaker with a distinctive humanistic voice. You know, we didn't talk about religion much, and that's because there's so many things going on in this movie. I think the the vast majority of which are bits and pieces from Gerwig's own own youth. And I think she uses religion not like specifically thematically. I'm not sure that there is a specific story point or story arc that she wants us to get here out of religion. 
What I see is her just executing really well that feeling of growing up in a religious environment where it's just constantly in the background and where certain moral values and certain ideas are just like instilled into you as kind of background. And for me, that comes up most when she's with her first boyfriend who turns out to be gay and they're hanging out together and she offers to let him touch her breasts. And he's like, oh, no, I respect you too much. And she's like, oh, yeah, of course. And it makes 100 percent sense to her that a randy teenage boy would not want to touch her body because why would you do that it would be disrespectful that's just that's the kind of thing when you're raised really religious you're taught on a level that you don't question until you get to be a certain age usually and i think there's a lot of that going on here and if i'm not mistaken there's a when she does get to the East Coast, and she's at a party. Uh, she sort of bristles at people talking about religion in a sarcastic way, right? Or, or am I misremembering that? She asks someone if he believes in God. Yeah, and he says, yeah. "Why would I?" And exactly right. I mean, I think that that response kind of irritates her, which makes sense. I it's think. clearly something that's still in her mind that she hasn't uh, resolved yet. Hi, Keith Phipps here. I wasn't on the last episode, but I really like Lady Bird. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and I think this, this letter kind of gets a lot right about what what makes that element of the film work. It's a good letter. Yeah, that is a good letter, and it's a it's a good thought. I, there's probably a whole bunch of other things in Lady Bird that we didn't tease out just because, as I say, there's a lot going on in that movie. And it's complicated and messy in the way an actual person's life is because it's based on an actual person's life. Yeah. So uh, the episodes before that pairing on The Graduate and Netflix's The Meyerowitz Stories have also gotten some feedback, mostly about The Graduate and what it looks like today. Scott, you want to read this one? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, Jack writes, The Graduate always had a huge fault for me in Dustin Hoffman's Bridgman Braddock being an empty slate who has no personality, charisma, or direction. I always wondered why the filmmakers never instilled any of the political climate that was on everyone's mind during the making of the movie. No one mentions the escalating Cold War, Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Movement, and protests on college campuses during which Ben supposedly graduates. Yet at the same time, it's what makes the movie timeless with modern audiences, who are able to project their own sense of alienation from modern-day political anxiety or stress about not being able to connect to others for a real relationship with the rise of social media. Does making Ben an empty slate prevent the movie or character of Ben from feeling dated, or am I desperate to justify Dustin Hoffman's performance? We kind of got into it in the episode. That was one of the critiques of the movie at the time was that it didn't mention the Vietnam War. Uh, it left a lot of the hot button issues off the table. But I think it's still of its time in some really interesting ways. And I think the 60s kind of creep in over the course of the movie as well. I mean, by the time you know you get to Berkeley, it's not like sort of erupting in protest, but you can feel it has sort of a different feel to it. You, you get... Norman Fell talking about outside agitators. And I, I think things like fairly blatant moments of rebellion, like Hoffman's character waving a cross around uh, at the at the church and wielding it as a weapon. This is uh, this feels like a very 60s movie in, in that sense. I mean, for me, his blankness was always part of the point. The, the fact that he's not engaged with all of this, all of the politics of the time, all of the things that, that young people are using to give themselves purpose is what makes him so purposeless. And he comes across as a fairly shallow, self-absorbed, self-involved person of privilege who doesn't appreciate his own privilege 
And because he's not engaged with anything else around him, he's bored and disaffected and lonely. And I, I mean, I feel the weight of all of these these political things on him. I feel that he's chosen to disengage with them. And I do think that by disengaging with the specificity of it, Mike Nichols does make the film fairly timeless. But to me, this isn't an apolitical movie. It's a movie about how all of the things that give you purpose, if you if you separate yourself from them, you find yourself in this sort of hedonist blank where anything goes and nothing is satisfying. And I think there's something to be said too about, and you mentioned privilege, I mean that if you are a person of, of means and you live in the suburbs, you can wall yourself out from all of the things that are going around. And even even if you're in the in the mix, I mean, you know, we're we're in a fairly turbulent time right now and we're making memes and doing whatever, whatever things we do. <laughs> Recording you know, podcasts. And living our lives and having dinner and whatnot. Everybody needs to eat. I don't know how <laughs> making uh, HelloFresh dinners. Making HelloFresh dinners. Um <laughs> in case somebody wants to send me another box. So I mean all all these things happen. There's that aspect, one. And two, there are times when the when those certain aspects of this sort of push on the borders of the movie. Like you get it in a very, very subtle way when he goes to Berkeley and you have Mr. Roper trying to get him uh, he thinks he's there as an agitator Uh, so you know that there's some sort of counterculture activity happening on campus that that the film at least indicates that much and then just the Anne Bancroft character and just the way the sexual revolution has found its way into the into the burbs and this this is something you talked about a lot on the show Tasha about uh, the pill and this woman who, who probably got married young and is, is, is unsatisfied, sexually frustrated, wants in on the action. And you're seeing that materialize in the movie, too. So it's not completely divorced from the things that are happening. But in the ways that it is divorced, I think it's quite deliberate and effective. Yeah, agreed. But again, that's just a really interesting thought um, in terms of something in the movie that we maybe didn't examine deeply enough. And speaking of that, we have gotten so many letters about Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. We're going to be talking about these movies until 2049. It is possibly true. We've put a lot of letters on uh, the Facebook page, and there's been some interesting discussion going on. A lot of different things about uh, what the movie is really about in terms of souls or soullessness or what it means to have a soul or religion or noir or gender relationships, a whole lot of other things. But here's a shorter one that addresses just one specific thing that we kind of puzzled over uh, specifically on the podcast. Keith, will you want to tackle this one? Certainly. Aaron from Redwood City, California writes, I enjoyed your recent episode on Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049, but I think you might have missed how the character of Neander Wallace, Jarrett Leto, may have been a commentary on the current state of the American industrial complex. We are awash in a tide of business leaders who are not content to simply be fabulously wealthy, but also demand to be praised as intellectual thought leaders who can justify their obscene rewards as part of a larger social project and not the result of inequality generated under capitalism. Living in the San Francisco Bay Area, it is hard to walk down the street and not be accosted by someone hoping to transition from their app development startup to the TED Talk minor leagues. Wallace's word salad about civilization needing slave labor to prosper and the lack of a servant class holding back humanity is removed from modern warmed-over Atlas Shrug-inspired bromides by degrees, not kind. It even holds that Wallace's plan to reduce production costs by switching the means of creating replicants is a way to play God instead of the more obvious reasons that it will make him more money. 
Yeah, I mean, as the person I think who puzzled most over what exactly his plan was, uh, I have been really enjoying the, the inpouring of letters that we've gotten addressing that specific thing. And people have a lot of, of theories kind of picking apart individual bits of what he said. But this is my favorite so far, because I know exactly the type of person Aaron is talking about here, uh, in terms of, you know, your Elon Musk's, you know, the person who is a guru and a, a leader as much as a business owner or or that completes the two yeah exactly one more than the other yes my enormous wealth must mean something about me yes share that with the world yeah visionary and my enormous wealth means i have the ability to make changes even if they're horrible horrible changes but because i'm enormously wealthy it stands to reason that the changes I want to make in the world are important. Mm -hmm. The thought leaders and such. Yes, exactly. So I really like this letter. I really like this thought. I really want to see that scene again, because people have given us so much to think about with it. Has, has anyone actually seen Blade Runner 2049 a second time? No. I, nope. I feel like the theme we come back to in every one of these feedback letters is we really need to watch this one again. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about We're you guys. We're not very good at our jobs. Well, I'm just not very good at, at re-watching things, because there is always a hundred films that I haven't seen mm -hmm. the first time yet. So I would love to be in Except a situation. Except Satan Maine. You'll watch Satan Maine over and over again, well, apparently. The, <laughs> watching it over and over was largely before or uh, I had a professional career of only ever watching something once. I hadn't revisited it in a long time, and I was actually really happy to. Although, <laughs> dreading it a little after Keith contacted us and was like, you realize this is all horrible. Do you know what we signed up for? <laughs> Well, speaking of what people can sign up for, you can sign up to share your thoughts and your recommendations with us. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode, post it on Facebook for discussion, or just discuss amongst ourselves if you have a really good matzah theory. That wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in Martin McDonough's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and talk over what both of these films have to say about redemptions, small towns, and second chances. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, go you Huskies. We will not speak of what happened in 1975, and we'll see you next time. For life was a sweet old-fashioned dream, and the memory lingers yet. And I think of our hour by the old mill stream, and I find that I'm still wet. Now the sun is...